Tonight's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, beginning in chapter 31. When the Son of Man... Oh, sorry, 25, that's what I meant, yeah. Matthew 25, verse 31, y'all listen. listen. A little Gnosticism. I'm just playing. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's the word of God. Please be seated. Glad to see you here again tonight. It's wonderful worshiping the Lord. Thank you so much for that testimony. That was awesome. What a blessing. You've been to our church, to your ethos, and thank you for sharing. Appreciate it, Ben. Our speaker tonight is uh, Jeremiah Vaught, who has been with us uh, for many years before we sent him out as our second church planner in Rogers Park. And now, Jeremiah is a very special guy. I, we, we knew him when he was young and fresh, and now he's old and mature. And um, he has such a heart for people. Um, my friend Mike and I were with Jeremiah today and this afternoon sharing the gospel on the streets of uh, Rogers Park, and Jeremiah doesn't even know people, and he's caring for them to share the gospel with them. And that extends um, to issues of justice and mercy. They have a very unique church as they are doing the work of God in, in, in a very diversified neighborhood economically, and then Jeremiah's going to talk about some of those things, but he's been such a blessing to me and to his new church and to us. So, Jeremiah, come here and bring the word, bro. Hey, I like claps. Claps are fun. So yeah, uh, last time I uh, had the opportunity to preach at a prelude to a revival event, my voice had not changed just yet, as Jason alluded to. So that was back in 2008. Um, 
So yesterday I celebrated my third uh, anniversary, so that was pretty cool. Um, I um, let me see. So I, I'm I'm kind of battling two competing emotions. Uh, one is complacency um, because I, I came in here tonight assuming that uh, none of you are high or drunk. Uh, that none of you are going to wear bells around your belt or around your head and walk it up and down the hall of uh, the aisleways. I assumed uh, that none of you would uh, take a cell phone call while I was preaching and talk for about two or three minutes. Those are not things that have simply happened in the in the life of our church, uh, but things that have happened in the last two or three months. Um, uh, and if you are drunk or high in here tonight, you're in a good spot, and uh, we're glad that you're here. Um, I, uh, like I said, I'm in an interesting predicament because I, I, I don't want to become complacent. It's nice to have, uh, I can already tell, a lot of ears. Uh, last time I preached at the Prelude to Revival, uh, there was just a spirit of acceptive, acceptance and receptiveness that was really uh, palpable and really in, a joy for me. Uh, however, um, the topic Jason gave me, I don't even know yet, and I'll know in about 45 minutes uh, whether I actually understand it or not. Um, that is the topic of justice, and especially relating justice to the topic of the week revival. And what happens when I get excited about a topic? Well, I read a few books, so I learned quite a bit about it. And when I get into a topic, I get excited. And one thing that has been kind of a, a two-word life lesson for me uh, that I've still yet to learn is this little life lesson, slow down. Um, many of you are here and you've been to maybe a few of these services and I'm excited about that. And, uh, many of you have been kind of thinking about revival this week, but just because that's happened, I don't want to assume that you know what revival is. I don't want to assume just because you've been here this week that it's been something you've got a hold of just yet. What is revival? How does revival happen? What's our role in revival? So having said that, I'm going to slow down just a little bit. And if I uh, yell over the course of this message, it's not because I'm abrasive or a jerk or anything. I was standing right in front of that speaker right there, and my ears are kind of buzzing. And so I promise you I'm not being aggressive with you in the least bit. It's just that, you know, I really can't hear myself uh, very well. So I apologize. Um, I'm going to do two sermons, actually. I'm going to have one sermon that's going to be very small, very short. Uh, it's going to be called The Root and Fruit of Revival. And the second sermon, which is going to be longer, is going to be called The Root and Fruit of Justice. Um, I want to say tonight that justice is a fruit of revival. It's a fruit of revival. Um, just like many of you are hoping that this week produces some sort of tangible fruit, something big will happen this week. Uh, a farmer, a tree farmer, is very much like you are this week. A tree farmer hopes that a tree that they plant and that grows will one day bring forth fruit that they can sell or eat. But before a farmer, a tree farmer, can get to fruit, what do they have to address first? If you know my title of my sermon, what is it? What do you have to address first before you get to root? I'm going to be a little bit interactive. Soil. What goes in the soil for a tree? Seed. And what eventually comes of seeds? 
root. There you go. That's the word I was looking for, root. What is the root of revival? What causes a revival to spring up to happen? Uh, I answered that question, I think, very well about five years ago at the first, you know, non-masculine voice revival that I preached. And I preached a song out of the Psalm 67. So if you want to turn there, Psalm 67, before I get to the passage, this is my short sermon. I'm going to talk to you about the root and fruit of revival so that you will see even here that justice is a fruit of revival and that will let us then go on to how do we get to justice. I think if I had a favorite psalm, Psalm 67 would be that. And I said, Psalm 67 is a song for revival. This song is a perfect one for uh, what revival might look like. It says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Uh, The fruit of revival is found throughout uh, this particular psalm. The fruit is found in verses 2 and 3 especially. Uh, We see that in verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Fruit. Fruit comes out of revival. But what's the root? What's the root? It's in verse 1. And the root of revival is this. God's extravagant favor. Read with me verse 1 again. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. I know I'm killing you, Pat. I'm watching you. I'm just sorry for that. You know, like I said, I don't even hear myself right now. Selah. Selah in the Psalms means stop. Hang there for just a second, friends. Before you move on to the next thing, remember what we're hoping for is that God will not simply not simply be gracious to us. We don't want God just to stop at forgiveness, which is good. You need forgiveness. We don't want God simply to stop at blessing us. It's good when your work thrives and you make money and crops grow and your livestock are doing well. Yes, we want blessing. I don't even want to stop there, God. May your face shine upon us. Find joy. I don't even know what I'm going to do, but find joy. Joy in us, God. Be pleased with us, God. Look on us with a smile beam when you look at us. At the root of revival, at the root of what we're looking for here this week is God's extravagant favor. This psalm is rooted in a prayer that Aaron gave for the people of Israel in the book of Numbers where he asked for basically the same thing. And this bald request assumes that God has been gracious in the past to the people of Israel. God had delivered them from slavery and had delivered them from evils of all sorts. God had been gracious in the past, and therefore they didn't say, God be gracious to us because we're awesome. God be gracious to us because we've been doing a lot of good things. They just said, just do it, God. Show us extravagant favor. Show us incredible favor. And don't. Don't miss this, friends. They were asking for favor now. They were like, that's cool that our forefathers were delivered from Egypt. It's cool. 
It's really cool that there were a time in our history where we were going through and praying and defeating armies that hated us, but we want your grace and mercy now. Be gracious to us now. Forgive us today. Bless us today. We want your face to shine upon us today and forevermore. This request isn't a request that simply settles for something that's happened in the past, but believes that God wants to be favorable to his people now. Now. Yeah, God, it's cool that you were really nice and gracious to those people in the chapter 2 of Acts, and you caused all sorts of incredible things to happen. You sent revival in their midst. Yeah, God, it's really cool that in the 15th century, the 16th century in Western Europe, there's this great reformation that happened. I'm glad they got to experience revival. And in the 18th century in the United States, and then again in the 19th century, that was great. California in the early 20th century, and now in certain countries like China and India where it seems like revival is breaking loose. Yeah, we're glad for that. But Evanston, do you want revival? Do you got, want God to bless you today? Do you desire that? Are you emptied of all that you have? And are you saying to God, I cannot make this happen. We cannot make this happen. Will you give us your favor today? Will you send your spirit in a special way today and from now on in this city? Will you do that for us? That's the root. God's extravagant favor. It will not happen if God is not giving us extravagant favor. And we are told in the book of Romans, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also give us all things? If God, the Father, will not spare us, giving us his best, his son, do you think he might want to give you revival if you'll just plead in earnestness today? Come on, people. I'm in Rogers Park. I need a little bit of, you know, come on. Do you think so? Do you want it? Are you empty? You can't make revival happen. I'm telling you, you're a lot, there are a lot of people in this room right now, comparatively speaking. You can't make revival happen. Unless God is gracious to us in a special way, revival will not happen. That's the root. God's extravagant grace. But look at the fruit. Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth. I'm coming back to that. Your saving power among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. You see what we're going to be talking about tomorrow in this, don't you? Let the peoples praise you, O God. We're going to be talking about the relationship of evangelism to revival tomorrow. And we see that that's a fruit of revival as well. When people are gripped by God's mercy and grace, they go out and share about it, but I'm not talking about that tonight. And we also see what we talked about last night in this passage. God be gracious to us and bless us. This is a corporate song, right? This isn't, you know, David sitting by himself, having a little psalm to himself. This is a song for people. Community is kind of root and kind of fruit, but it's definitely fruit. When revival happens, the people of God come together and they un- and as one to say, God, more of you, more of you, please. I want to show you, actually, though, the root, uh, the fruit that I'm going to be talking to you about tonight, and it's this. Let your ways be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. What are the ways of God? What does it mean for God's ways to be known on the earth? I want you to see that 
God's ways are the ways of justice. And if I showed you the entire book of Isaiah, you could probably get this. The book of Isaiah is basically a book about how God's going to give justice to the earth. But let me give you a few passages about how God's way, what God's ways are. Psalm 37, 28, it should be up on the uh, side right there. It says, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. Boldness to ask for more favor. Psalm 89, 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Isaiah 30, 18, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. When God's ways are known on the earth, the ways of justice are known on the earth. Justice is a fruit. Uh, This past week, uh, Sunday, you talked about God's glory in the gospel. The root of revival is seeing God as he is and seeing his beautiful love for us most clearly in the gospel. Root. His holiness as well would be a part of the root. Seeing how incredibly holy our God is and being amazed that he would love us. We know that through his word. Root. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are fruit. When the people of God have revival, community is strengthened. Justice happens through the people, and evangelism occurs. Um, the root and fruit of revival. Uh, kind of moving away from that tree image, I want to kind of work through that image of a, a body uh, that you've, we've been working with this week. Usually what I had thought about when I thought about, uh, you know, mind, heart, hands, or uh, how do you say it? Um, Heart, hands, hands, heart, head. There you go. Hands, heart, head. Whoo! Tell you, I uh, maybe I am. I I can hear now, so I need to take it easy. Hand, heart, hands. So you're a body. The uh, the Book of Corinthians talks about the fact that you, as the people of God, are a body. The question is, are you healthy? question is, are you healthy? I want you to see that the gospel, that God's love, that God's extravagant favor in many ways is like food to the body. And head, heart, and hands, in many ways, uh, what we're talking about here uh, these next three days, the, the, the work of different things all working together. I'm, I'm kind of mixing my imagery up a little bit. Happens is healthy when everything is working together. You can't have a healthy body without all three of those things working in conjunction. And many of us, when we think about uh, a lot of these issues, we kind of think about it almost like uh, a Mr. Potato Head. Uh, you remember Mr. Potato Head? Um, so what, what we think is, you know, okay, Mr. Potato Head, uh, you know, sometimes if Mr. Potato Head doesn't have his nose or like one of his eyes, he kind of looks weird, right? And we think, uh, oh, all we got to do is add the eyes. All we got to do is add the nose. And when we think about uh, evangelism or community or something like that, you know, you're like, I'm not so good at that community piece. Maybe I'll just stick on a nose or I'll stick on an eye. The imagery of head, heart, hands conveys to us, conveys to us, friends, when you're getting the gospel, when you're getting God's extravagant grace, you're feeding yourself. You still need head, heart, and hands to be working in conjunction. And I'm using those three to kind of parallel community, evangelism, and justice. 
if any of those three are missing, community, evangelism, justice, you're not going to have a healthy body. It's going to be sick. It's not like you just add it on somehow. If you are not doing justice, your evangelism will suffer. Your community will suffer. It will. The root of revival is God's extravagant favor. Do you want it? Do you want it? I'm going to stop now. End of sermon one. I want to give you an opportunity right now, just in about 30 seconds to a minute of silence. You're, you have nothing to the table to bring, friends. I'm, I'm telling you that as somebody who decided to try to plant a church thinking that I could do it. Uh, I am, I'm walking death in front of you right now. Um, you can't do this. So let's lift up. Let's lift up our prayers, our voices to God. Let's ask God for the revival we're seeking. Let's pray that justice would come out of it. And I'll lead us, and I'll, I'll talk about justice next. Father God, I just... These are my, this is my family. Um, and I know that they've been here. The leadership has been begging you and the people that have been here begging you uh, truly night and day this week for revival. And I pray that you give it to them. To see you on your majestic throne, to see your goodness, to see your ways known the earth, to see people praise you that formerly rejected you, the joy that that brings. God, would you give that to us? We long for it, and we, we know that we can't bring it about. We're really empty-handed before you right now. Help us to see that revival only comes when we see your goodness and long for more. Produce in us a desire for justice on the earth. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So it's good that you read the uh, passage uh, for my next sermon, The Root and Fruit of Justice, before. And that's where we're going to turn now, back to Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Um, I'm just going to set this here, and if I need to consult it, I will. Jesus, in this parable, this famous parable that many of you know, uh, challenges uh, the most basic way that we view ourselves. Uh, many of us think that who we are is bound up in how well-educated we are, how much money we make, how successful we are, um, what we do uh, as far as worldly accomplishments. And Jesus says, kind of like uh, some of the fairy tales you know, and I'll explain which ones those are in a little bit, that who you are is really about how you treat people. It's how you view other people. Let me say that actually a little bit better. Who you really are is about who loves you and how you love in response. Who are you, friends? The answer is, we'll see. How well do I love Beauty and the Beast, right? The frog and the prince. You know what I'm saying? No, you don't. I just, I just want to make sure you're paying attention right now. 
So the beginning of the Beauty of the Beast, what happens? There's an, there's an enchantress that cloaks herself, that cloaks herself in basically the, the garb of a peasant, of a poor person. And she goes to a wealthy prince, and she asks him, hey, can you let me stay for a night in exchange for a rose? He's like, no way. Uh, you're homeless. You smell. Get out of here. She reveals her true identity, and she turns him into a beast, and he can only be rescued when someone sees beneath who he is, sees the true person inside. It's a very lovely story. Because this person knew how to love, knew how to see it. The princess and the frog, very similar story, right? Uh, in the real Brothers Grimm story, the, uh, the prince is uncovered when the uh, princess throws the frog against the wall. But that, uh, you know, is a little bit different. The same principle applies. We learned it as kids. Do we remember it now? Who you are is bound up with how you treat others. Who you really are is bound up with how you treat others. And what Jesus says is, what you really think about me is bound up with how you treat other people. You see, the people that he's talking to here, he's not, he's giving a parable, right? And I'll talk about what that parable says. Parables, right, are intended to give one main point. They can give a few different points, but parables in general have one main idea. And the point of this parable isn't to show you how you get saved. You don't get saved by clothing the homeless. You don't get saved by making sure that you feed the hungry. That's not how it works. Rather, those that were saved before the beginning of time, those that were foreknown by the God of the universe and that have been believed in faith will be the sort of people that will say, I will treat that person with love and care because they are made in the image of God. The point isn't to try to tell you, hey, here's how you get this salvation, but rather, what a saved person, what someone who really understands the grace of Jesus, the fact that Jesus would save wretched sinners like us, goes to identify with other people. And how could we look at the poor with disdain, those that don't have much with lack of love? How you view Jesus totally affects how you view others. Jesus identifies himself with the poor, the weak, and the oppressed. And he says, however you treat them, you have actually treated me in this same way. And there will be people that are truly righteous and saved, that when they hear on that last day that they clothed and fed Jesus, they'll be like, what in the world? I didn't know that happened. He'll be like, because you treated the poor with respect and care to who they are, you treated me in this way. Now let me get a little practical here because I, I, I'm, a, I'm practical. I know you're practical too. We're all practical people. So you walk, you're walking down the street, right? And uh, you know, next, to, next to Barnes & Noble, and somebody puts out a cup, and ask you for money. You don't give it to them. You don't give the money to them. Uh, did you just reject Jesus? Uh, let me take it a little bit further to kind of see how this question could be a really a hard one. If that person asks you for money and you're like, hey, what's going on? Why do you need money? And they're like, I'm hungry. And you decide to take them to Burger King or Taco Bell did you really just take Jesus to Burger King or Taco Bell? 
I mean, come on, three extra dollars would have gotten him Chipotle. <laughs> a few more, Dizzy Kitchen, some of the jambalaya. I even want to go after the service and get some jambalaya. Seriously, if you haven't asked that question, I suggest you should. But let me tell you a little bit of what I see going on in this particular parable. Jesus is not telling you how to handle every single particular situation, nor did he actually speak to a situation where there was a welfare state in place that actually was very negative for the poor in the first place. He's not giving you situational ethics in this passage. He's not telling you how to handle every single situation. What he is doing is he's telling you how you need to view every single person that you come in contact with. Every single person, no matter who or what they are. As C.S. Lewis once said, in, in short, every single person that you come in contact with is an immortal, such that if you saw them in the future, they would either be somebody you would be tempted to worship or a horror that you would run away from in fear. The idea is that they... All of us are cloaked. We are made in the image of God. How dare we despise another or look down upon or ignore them and act as if they're not important, as if who they are is not important. We were saved and bought by the King of glory, by Jesus Christ himself. How can we look at the poor as people that needed the grace of God that were empty-handed with disdain? The root of justice is revival, like I said, but more specifically, it's seeing Jesus' identification with the weak and the oppressed and the needy. You will not be a person of justice until you get that. You really won't. You won't understand what it, who it is you're engaging with on every, in every single day of your life. You are engaging immortals that, that are more glorious than you can possibly know. You, friends, each and every single one of you, if I could go and just tell you, hey, you know, you're glorious, you're amazing, not because you know, you're not a sinner or anything, but just because you're made in the image of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. How unbelievable. The root of justice is identifying, recognizing Jesus, Jesus' care and his identification with other people. Now, now Jesus isn't saying something out of the ordinary here. Uh, the Proverbs, which you've been studying as a church, uh, for a little while, basically says uh, the same thing. It says the, that the person who treats the poor with care honors their maker. Now, at this point, you're probably like, um, Jeremiah, you forgot something from me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm left-brained. I don't, uh, I don't quite know where you're going because you haven't defined justice yet for me. You haven't yet defined what justice is. And so I, I, can't, I can't get a hold of this whole justice thing. I'm going to give you a bunch of pictures of justice that will allow you to get a hold of what it is. And I'm going to do that through talking again about head, heart, and hands. And I'm going to help you see what justice looks like. And I will consult this now. I want you to see three fruits of justice. I want you to see three fruits of justice. And I want to say up front, this is going to be a hard discussion for many of you. First, uh, uh, many of you were kind of brought up in a Christian church, probably, where you weren't really told justice is a part of being a good disciple. It wasn't like, uh, you know, go share your faith, uh, learn from believers, read your Bible, and go be Batman, you know? 
It wasn't that. You were not taught justice as a part of your discipleship, so you don't understand justice as a part of your discipleship. Secondly, many of us, uh, we've grown up in the United States and have not faced injustice, and therefore, especially as white middle-class Americans, sorry, me too, um, we haven't really faced a lot of injustice, therefore we haven't done a lot of deep thinking about justice in the first place. We don't understand justice like our forefathers did, like the people or the, or the original founding fathers of the United States, because we haven't had to think a lot about it. Uh, there are a few other things that make it hard to. It's a little bit, it seems going to seem a little bit political what I talk about at times. Uh, I assure you that I'm not a fanboy of any political party or any politician, actually. Uh, once you think seriously about justice, it will be hard to be a fanboy or fangirl of any political party. In my opinion, in my opinion, <laughs> that's what I wanted to say. And last, many of us don't know how to apply justice practically. I hope to address all those things uh, really quick. Uh, so three fruits. First, the head. The head, get the imagery, understanding this situation with your mind. Understanding rights. Understanding rights. Uh, Proverbs 29.7, which you may have uh, come across in your studies of Proverbs. It says, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. The wicked man does not understand such knowledge. The righteous man understands the rights of the poor. The wicked man does not understand such knowledge. What are the rights of the poor? What are the rights of the poor? If your first thought about what the rights of the poor were, the right to remain silent or the right to legal representation, uh, you're really far off of understanding the rights for the poor. If you were to go a little bit deeper and say the rights of the poor are the life, to li- life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you're getting better. You're getting further along in understanding what the rights for the poor are. But you need to also understand that uh, Locke, Jefferson, and Hobbes were not coming from the Bible in their views of what rights are. And I want to, as you are Evanston Bible Fellowship, come from the Bible a little bit to help you understand what the rights of the poor are. This would be a good question for ethos communities, by the way. What are the rights of the poor? Because there's no way I'm going to exhaust that answer very clearly here. I will get started in that direction, though, and I'm going to go somewhere you might not have expected. I'm going to go first to the Ten Commandments. In general, uh, the rights for the poor, the rights for anyone, an unjust, an unjust society be, would be a society where you cannot obey the laws of God. If you cannot obey the laws of God, that's injustice. I'm not saying that, again, I'm not saying that we are to mandate certain commandments but I'm saying as people, we should be free to, to practice the laws of God or else we're not truly free or else we're being denied our rights. Okay? And the command I really want to focus on is the Sabbath command in Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15 to kind of give you two rights for the poor because I think it really helps us understand our current context and our current situation. It says in Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15, observe the Sabbath day. Keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, 
And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. What does that have to do with rights? Two rights I see here. The right to work and the right to rest. Those two have to go together. Those two have to go together. What I mean is this. If we're living in a country, if we're living in a situation where people cannot get a job or cannot be developed to be gainfully employed, we're living in an unjust situation. It's seriously. If you can't get a job, if you don't have an opportunity to, you know, say skills change, you know, I understand that, you know, uh, there, there may be a time where if I, if, I, if I weren't a pastor, I would be not gainfully employed anywhere but McDonald's the rest of my life. I promise I'm not very skilled at many things. In a just society, in a just situation, people should be able to get work. And coupled with that, they should also be able to get rest. They should also be able to get rest. Those two being held in balance are very important. Someone might be able to get work, but yet they have to work 80 hours a week just to make sure that they can pay the bills, have clothing for their children, and have food. That is also an unjust situation. The reason that the people were called to take a Sabbath rest in that commandment, as you just saw, he makes this connection between slavery in Egypt. Slavery in Egypt. Why does he make that connection? Because if you cannot rest, you're a slave. If you choose not to rest, you're willfully choosing slavery. You're being a slave to your, to your, to your master boss. And when you're in a situation, when there's a situation in this world where the poor cannot get work and cannot rest, that's unjust. Okay? Two rights. Two, two more I'm coming at you with. Uh, the second two rights are negative justice and positive justice. Negative justice and positive justice. Negative justice is your right to be punished for doing wrong. You have that right. You're like, I, that's a good right for you. You don't see that yet. That's a good right. It's good for society, number one. It's good that if you steal from me, you're going to get punished and you are being deterred away from stealing from me. That's good. And it also affirms your dignity that I'm actually going to hold you accountable for doing something bad. That's easy to understand. Most of us get that. We think that people should be punished. And Romans 13 makes that right very clear. There is a right to be punished for doing wrong. And there's a right for society. What we don't understand so well are positive rights. Are positive rights. What do I mean by that? Positive rights means that every human being is entitled. I don't want to use the word entitled because it just has such a negative... Every human being deserves something. What is it that they deserve? What are those positive rights? I actually think that this passage helps us in that regard. And I'm going to show you that. If you look with me, uh, look in, back in Matthew 25. And you'll see it uh, there in verses 35 and 36. What are, the, what are these rights for the poor? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was a prisoner, and you came to me. I see three rights here. First, basic needs. Clothes, shelter, food, water, right? If we're living in a society, in a situation where people cannot get their basic needs all of them by working 50 hours a week, unjust. That is not right. That's evil. 
and we should be grieved by that reality. Basic needs are a right for the person that's willing to work. And remember, like I said, the right to work means that you should work if you're able-bodied under normal circumstances, you're not disabled, or that sort of thing. First Thessalonians tells us that very thing. The person who's not willing to work shouldn't eat. It's also unjust for someone who can work not to work and to be kept in that situation through a welfare state. So I just made both the, uh, the conservatives and the uh, progressives happy all the same, and mad at the same time, too. Number two, care for the sick. If you're sick, and I, I, right now I have a fractured tooth. I found that out today. And if I did not have insurance, I would be paying a lot more than I want to to fix this fractured tooth. And I'm, you know, it's, it's actually rubbing up against my mouth right now. And it's bothering me, but I'm so glad that I have insurance. Thank, thank goodness I have that. I have been treated justly in that fashion. Care for the sick. If I'm not saying how it has to be done. I'm not making, again, uh, if people are sick in our country and they cannot get a, an adequate care for their health, that's a justice issue. It's a justice issue. I'm not going to tell you how that works. What's the best way? I don't have a clue. I'm a pastor. Third, uh, again, attending, you see, in this present. Is Jesus, isn't it interesting that Jesus was in prison? Um, he says, I was in prison and you visited me. Uh, how many of us think about the right for a prisoner to be attended or visited by someone? That's hard for us to imagine, those of us that you know could imagine uh, sending our, our grandparents or our parents someday off to a nursing home and neglecting them for 20 years. Thank you so much for the ethos communities that are addressing those sorts of issues and saying that's an unjust situation for people not to be attended in their need and in their time. People, it's a right to be cared for. I, I know that sounds crazy to some of us because we don't think about it very much, but it's a right. It's a right for people to be cared for, even when they've made mistakes. Jesus is talking about being in prison. You know who goes to prison? People that we don't think deserve much. One last thing I want to say about this, and then we'll move on to the heart, which is you've got to differentiate between justice and fairness. Justice and fairness. There's a big difference between the two. Fairness seeks to make sure everybody gets the same thing. Justice seeks to give everybody what they deserve. Let me give you a, let me help you out with what I mean by that. If you got a speeding ticket for going 10 miles per hour over and somebody went past you going 15 miles per hour over, that wasn't unjust. Maybe unfair, but it wasn't unjust. You deserve that speeding ticket. The world's not fair, friends. I, I was not giving a singing voice or the ability to understand music at all. It's not fair. Why? I would have been so popular if I could have just played that guitar and sing. You know, I would have been way more liked. It's not fair. Let me give you another example. I'm a pastor. I, I got an MDiv, master's degree. Master's. Just remember that. There are lawyers out there that also got master's degrees. And you know what? I work 50 to 60 hours a week sometimes. And they work 50 to 60 hours a week sometimes. Shouldn't I get paid the same as them? I should. If this were a fair world, I would get paid the same as them. Maybe. Actually, probably not. You know, I didn't say I worked well. It's 50 to 60 hours work. Right? Right? 
Right, right, right. Actually, I, I understand me when I'm saying this. I actually don't think so. And I, I, I'm, I, you know, I like getting more money, but that, that would never be something I would say no to. But it's not a justice issue. It's not an issue of justice. I don't deserve to get paid as much as someone else. I don't deserve that. It's not a right of mine. I may want it. It's not, a, it's not a right for me to get paid the same as everybody else. But if someone, again, is working 70 hours a week and they cannot take care of themselves because they're getting treated so poorly, that's a justice issue. Okay? Fair and justice. Hopefully that winds it down. Heart. Point number two, or fruit number two, mercy. And by the way, that was by far the longest point, just so you know. Fruit number two, mercy. Uh, Mercy, friends, is not getting the punishment you deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve. In other words, mercy is a word that you can only define in view of justice. You don't understand mercy unless you have justice. Justice Justice is concerned with seeing that people get treated with equity and concern with respect to the rights and the wrongs. When people get treated correctly according to the wrongs, they get punished. Our story is the story of mercy, that you, friends, were radical sinners, radical, radical rebels, radically rebellious against your God and your maker, and you deserve punishment ostracism away from the beautiful, gracious presence of your God and maker forever. Yet you receive mercy. But that's not beautiful unless you understand justice. It makes no sense apart from justice. In fact, I'll even go this far and say, justice has always been essential to God's character. Justice has been forever. Justice is God's recognition of everything that's right, everything that's wrong, and judging accordingly. He's always called good, good, and when evil entered, bad. He's always viewed things righteously and justly. But there wasn't always a time where mercy was necessary, was there? People had to rebel before mercy became necessary. And when you recognize that at the core of who God is, justice is there, yet you receive mercy and you recognize that, how can you be satisfied in a situation where people not only don't get mercy, but they don't even get justice? You get mercy. The very least you could hope for is that people around you get justice, what they deserve, right? When you realize that you have been granted incredible pardon for your sin, you cannot be satisfied where people don't even get what they deserve. And then you want to go a little bit further as people have been given mercy, and you want to see mercy given in certain situations to other people. Someone sins against you, mercy. Mercy should lead because we've been given mercy. If you really get that in your heart, if this knowledge drops to your heart and you get it, you'll be a merciful person. The third, the hands, invested presence. Uh, You call this invested sojourning, invested presence. Um, What do I mean when I say invested presence? What am I talking about? Um, Basically, when we think about investing in a time and place, especially 20 to 30-year-olds, you're kind of thinking about, you know, your next step, where you're going to live your life, uh, somewhere else, how you're going to get where you want to go in life. You don't really think about now very often. Invested presence, 
was what Jesus really did in his life. Pretty much in his entire life, he went, he traveled way less than most of us. He invested most of his time in 12 apostles and a few other disciples, and he did most of that in a specific area. He did that in a specific area in an outpost in the Roman Empire, and he invested his life in that. This is the same Jesus, by the way, who upholds the universe with the word of his mouth. He could have done way more, but he gives us an example of what it looks like to do ministry on the earth, and it looks like invested presence here. It looks like invested presence here. I, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Why does invested presence matter to justice? Um, I have been uh, in Rogers Park, where I'm pa- uh, pastoring a church now, since October of 2009. And I am just now starting to understand the injustices that, it, that my neighbors experience. I'm just now starting to scratch the surface of that. And until you are willing to invest in a specific place and get to know your neighbors, you won't understand the injustice they're facing. You just won't. And until you're, you begin to invest in other people working for justice in your neighborhood, you won't be able to do it. I don't think most of you are politicians going to Springfield or Washington, D.C. You can't rule, you cannot enforce justice by the sword. You just can't. Invested presence matters because that's the only way, that's the only way justice will ever happen because until you really understand your neighbors, what they're experiencing, you will never, ever know how to get justice for them or see justice done for them. It just won't, it won't happen. And friends, there are a lot of people at EBF that have invested here for a number of times. And I, I want to tell you something that may be shattering, earth-shattering to you, but they're not immortals. And if you're 20 or 30 and you don't know, you know what you want to do with your life, is Evanston really such a bad place? I know February gets a little cold. But what would it look like to be a part of a church carrying on the same mission that started over 25 years ago saying, I want to see the good for Evanston. In the Celtic way of evangelism, this guy uh, talks about how the early Celts went out and shared their faith. And one thing that the people came to know very soon was that the people that were sharing their faith with them loved them. And this is how the guy said it. Once the people, once the Celtic people realized that they, the people sharing their faith, loved them, cared for them, were for them, they believed that their God was for them as well. How many of you are willing to stay here, say no to all the many different options you have out there in this wide world, and say, I'm going to love a specific people with a specific group of believers for as long as I can. I'm going to be in Rogers Park, hopefully, until 2048, 2053. We started an ESL class recently for refugees. We've had uh, Congolese, uh, we've had people from Eritrea, and we've had people uh, from Laos come to this ESL class. I'm telling you, we are just now scratching the surface. And if Mesa and I are the only ones there doing ministry in Rogers Park, we're always going to be just scratching the surface. We're always going to be just scratching the surface because we will not be able to do it on our own. We've got so much limitation, but there's a lot of things. There's so much, so much giftedness in this room, friends, and it, it needs to be invested in the good of a place it may not be evidence for all of you, but for some of you, you may need to decide, I'm going to settle down here for the good of these people. Uh, the best example, I know of this, and then I'm done. I've taken more time than I was granted. I apologize. I apologize. 
Um, it was all, I, don't, I can't blame anybody, actually. I was warned. Um, some of you may maybe have heard the story before. Um, in the in the years uh, about 20, uh, 251, 251 to 266, in the city of Rome, the largest city in the Roman Empire, um, there was a plague that broke out, and it was either measles or smallpox. We're not quite sure what happened. Uh, but in the city of Rome, which was predominantly pagan at that point, or Gentile, or non-Christian or Jew, non-Christian or Jewish, um, there was such an, a large amount of deaths beginning in 251 and 266 that at its peak, 5,000 people were dying a day from this disease. 5,000 people a day. Friends, that would take 20 days to wipe out Evanston, just so you know, to get a kind of a grasp on what that would look like. And what ended up happening next ended up being the changing point, the, change, the, the very thing that changed the city of Rome to become eventually, by the year 261, a Christian city. Hear with me uh, how uh, the guy Dionysius, uh, quoted in Rodney Stark's The Rise of Christianity, describes the situation and talks about what happens with these early Christians. He says, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their ever need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high condemnations to the death in this form the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. That last little bit was a little hard. Check this. The pagans behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, fled from their own families, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. EBF 2013. Are we more like these pagans, or are we more like the Christians that went before us? Would you be willing to lay it down for the sake of your neighbor, in a specific place, in a specific time, for their good? What ended up happening for some of these Christians, this later described, some of them actually... Because they were near others, they were cared for, and some of them that were able to actually survive built up an immunity to the disease, and they ended up turning out to be the ones that nursed many back to life. And because of that power, many were converted as Christians. Justice, evangelism, community, they're all interrelated. They're all connected. Will you be about them all? As a people, recognizing they can't drop one without the other. Will we be a people, will we be a people that recognize Jesus' identification with the poor, his love for your neighbor, will you be willing to lay it down for them? That's what justice will look like for the Christian church. That's how it spreads for the Christian church. We do not spread it through the sword. We spread it through love. Love is the way justice is spread. That's the only way that it can actually change through, through us, and it's the best way because the sword 
Martin Luther King Jr. said the sword can save him from being lynched, but it cannot save a people. It cannot convince a people to do justice. But you have the reason because Jesus has said, I am with these, the least of these, the poor, the oppressed, and the weak. Let's pray for them now. Uh, Father, thanks so much. Again, we just want to come before you and, and want to say uh, we don't have a lot of solutions. Uh, we're, not, we're not in a position to know how to fix everything. God, you alone can do that. Jesus is alone as Savior of the world, but we are going to be content. We are going to be incont- not content in this world until justice is spread more. We're not content in an unjust world. And I just pray, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here to be gripped by a view of what justice might look like here and now in Evanston because they love you and because they know that you love them. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is a song um, called Times that we would like to just share with you, all right? So this is from us to you if you want to reflect on it. And and I think it actually, I was kind of going over the lyrics as as I was hearing the sermon, and and there's a lot that, um, you know, that that kind of uh, interacts well and and combines well. So anyways, if you had, I mean, we were just given a lot, and so maybe you just want to think about some things that were said um, and just kind of let the words wash over you. this is kind of how we'll transition into corporate worship. Okay, we will sing some songs together.